Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand. The fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Father, we thank you that there is one who takes away our illness, who bears our disease as he bears our sin upon the cross. We ask, Lord, as he speaks to us, that we would listen. In Christ's name, amen. It's not easy as a pastor to know whether or not a sermon is going well when it's happening or after the fact whether it was good or not. There are certain indicators that, that tend to persuade you one way or the other. People come up to you afterward and say, hey, that was a good sermon. You're like, oh, good. If a few people say it, you're like, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe I'll start to believe it. Um, a better pastor than me would say, don't bring your praise to me. Don't tell me these kinds of things. But I'm more of a weak man who, who desires these sorts of reassurances because I assume everything's gone badly from the beginning. But, but if throughout the course of the week I keep hearing, no, no, that was good, then, then great, that's wonderful. That's, that's encouraging. Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount and gets no indicators that things have gone well. None of the traditional things that that a pastor who's preached a sermon might be looking for. No one congratulated Jesus on what a fine sermon he just preached. They didn't gather around to tell him how much they'd liked what he'd had to say. Nobody came out and said, hey, you've given me a lot to think about, Rabbi. I'm going to be chewing on this one all week long. Nobody said, you know, I really needed to hear that. None of that took place. Matthew doesn't tell us that they said anything. Instead, he says they were astonished. They weren't congratulatory. Their jaws dropped. They weren't quite sure what to say or who they'd be saying it to. What kind of guy talks this way? Who teaches this way? They didn't know what to do with what they just heard. Why? Why were they astonished? Matthew gives us an explanation. He says they were astonished by his authority. Because he taught with authority, not like a scribe. Jesus did not teach the word like an interpreter of the word. 
Jesus taught the word like he'd spoken it. Like it was his word in the first place. He had authority in what he said, and it astonished them. His teaching was accompanied with power. His teaching was full of majesty. There was something different about what he said and how he said it. Calvin says, all were seized with astonishment because a strange, indescribable, and unwanted majesty drew to him the minds of men. They'd not heard anything like this before. He didn't teach like a scribe. He teached like a prophet. He didn't teach like a man. He taught like a god. Authority. He spoke with the authority of a king. He spoke with divine authority. Jesus spoke with the authority, let's say, of a divine king. But he didn't just speak that way. He acted that way too. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, we've seen the word that Jesus speaks, which astonishes people. But now, in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we're going to see a compilation of Jesus' works, his deeds. And his deeds, too, are astonishing. And his deeds, too, demonstrate authority. Authority. As we work through chapter 8 and chapter 9, you're going to see time and time again this this sense of Jesus' authority being revealed and reinforced. What we're looking at this morning, we have two of the actions of Jesus. Two healings. The cleansing of the leper in chapter 8, verses 1-4, through and then the healing of Peter's mother-in-law in in chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. And then after that, in verse 16, there's kind of a summary of a bunch of healings that Jesus does and some, some casting out of demons. And then in the final verse, verse 17, we have a fulfillment formula. We haven't gotten one of these from Matthew since all the way back in chapter 4. But once again, he's going to go back and tell us this happened to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. And he's going to quote Isaiah 53 to explain the healing ministry of Jesus. So we see Jesus acting with the authority of a divine king. He speaks with authority and he acts with authority as well. And he shows his authority to cleanse the unclean, his authority to make the broken whole again, to raise the prostrate and equip them for service. One of the important things to note as we work through chapter 8 and chapter 9 is that there will be these constant acknowledgments of Jesus' kingship, of his authority. Some of them will be uh, verbal. Others will be gestures. We'll see people doing things that suggest that Jesus has astonished them with his authority. We'll see people kneeling down before him, literally. We'll see them verbally kneeling, saying things that demonstrate that he is in authority over them and, and over everything. We'll see some some gestures change as well. We'll see some people who begin by kneeling actually being raised up and invited to recline with Jesus at the table with him. And all of these gestures, the physical gestures and the verbal gestures taken together paint a picture of, of people who are perceiving and receiving their king. That the king has come 
And this is what it looks like when he starts to walk around in his kingdom and demonstrate his authority. They're not deciding to attribute authority to him. That's not what's happening. They're not saying, hey, I like this guy. I'm going to give him authority as my king. They are recognizing the authority that radiates out of him, that is inescapable, the difference that is manifested in everything he says and everything that he does. You consider the case of the leper, you'll get several of these things all wrapped up into one. The leper approaches Jesus with a gesture. He kneels before Jesus. Let me try it again, my Greek. Prosecani. Prosecani is what he does. He prosecanies before Jesus, which is translated here to kneel. But just for context, if you go back to Matthew 2, when the Magi come to Jesus, they say that they have come to prosecane, say I, or something like that, before Jesus as well. Same word, same verb. Right? They've come to worship him. It's translated in Matthew 2. Here it's translated as kneel. If you go back in some older translations, it'll be translated worship here as well. But it's the gesture of worship. Proskuneo is to kneel. In worship, the leper kneels before him the way you might kneel in the presence of your king. That's what he does. But if you're trying to interpret what the leper is doing, you're saying, well, maybe I'm reading into this. I mean, he's kneeling down, but people go down on their knees for a lot of reasons. He speaks, and his speech makes it clear what the gesture means. He calls Jesus Lord, Kyrie. Like we sing Kyrie, we're singing Lord Jesus. He is acknowledging the lordship of Jesus here. And then he goes on to speak, and verbally he does a little kneeling and a little acknowledgement of Jesus' authority. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. Think about what this man is saying. This man who is afflicted by leprosy, a skin disease, he is unclean. He is outside the community, outside the, the camp, so to speak. And he comes up to Jesus And he says, if you want to, you could make me clean. It's as if this guy's never read the Old Testament and doesn't know how hard it is once you're unclean to be made clean. He says, all you have to do is want it, and it will be so. That's kneeling with your words before Jesus, acknowledging that he has the power to make a leper clean. Jesus often tells people, uh, your faith has made you whole. Faith in what? Faith in the authority of Jesus Christ. In believing that he can do what he wants to do. If you will, you can make me clean. The only thing standing between this man and restoration is the will of Jesus. All it takes is for Jesus to want it. And so Jesus wants it. He shows his authority. He touches the man. And even there, that's interesting. Because that's something you're not meant to do. You're not meant to touch a leper. You're not meant to touch an unclean person because that's how uncleanness spreads. This is the reason why, like if you're on your way to worship in the temple and you come across a dead body, you shouldn't touch it because people who touch dead bodies are ritually unclean. They can't enter into the presence of God. So Jesus encounters a leper. The leper speaks to him. And Jesus, first thing he does is he reaches out and he touches this man. 
Who knows when the last time this man felt the touch of another was. But Jesus touches him and does not become unclean. Because that doesn't work that way if you are the king of holiness. Jesus cannot be made unclean by a touch. It's the other way around. What Jesus declares clean cannot be made unclean. Jesus says, I will be clean. Just like that. Four words in English. It's just two in Greek. As simple as that. If you want it, it will be that way. Jesus says, I want it. Let it be so. He decrees it. That is authority. That is authority. The ability to make true whatever you want, whatever you will to make it so, that's authority. That's why they were astonished that Jesus could do things like this, that he had that kind of power. It's significant, too, what this leper asks for. Sometimes you'll hear people describe this and say, Jesus healed a leper, which is true, but doesn't quite go far enough. Because what the leper asked for is not just healing, but cleansing. Cleansing. There's more involved than just being made well. That's what we would do. We would diagnose it, medically speaking, and say, this guy's sick. Somebody needs to give him some medicine. Somebody needs to make him well. But he's not just sick. He is also unclean. If you go back to the book of Leviticus... The book of Leviticus very helpfully gives an extraordinarily detailed set of instructions for what to do in the case of leprosy. In Leviticus 13, it gives instructions for handling lepers, uh, how they're ritually unclean, how they cannot enter into the, the tabernacle or the temple, how they need to be sequestered outside the camp. Leprosy here is sort of a catch-all phrase for a variety of different conditions, And when the Bible talks about leprosy here, it even includes things that can impact not just people, but but structures, buildings can become infected. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. And and we typically will try to unpack all of this language and and read it this way. We'll say, in a primitive world, a pre-scientific world, this was a way for them to deal with the reality of contagious disease even though they didn't have the the framework yet to understand it. And so God gave them a, a law that was meant to prevent leprosy from spreading. But as I say, if you read the description of leprosy, you see it includes a, a lot of things that, that may or may not be contagious in that way. It's more complicated than that. You'll also see that there's a difference, a distinction made between recovering from the illness and being made clean. So it's not that if a person showed signs of leprosy, he had to go outside the camp and he couldn't enter into the temple. But as soon as he was better, he could do those things. No, he might be better, but still not be clean. And so in Leviticus 14, there's a very helpful and detailed narrative of all that must be done in order to cleanse the leper who has recovered from his illness. Sacrifices have to be made. Watches need to be observed over time. It's very elaborate, uh, so elaborate that as you read Leviticus 14, it's one of those things you're like, wow, this is a lot of stuff to have to do. 
be hard to remember all of the different steps involved in this problem that in our minds doesn't actually exist. We no longer believe in uncleanness in the same way. We're not going to read Leviticus 14. I wish we had time to do that, though. If you were to go and and make a promise to yourself, I'm going to read through all of Leviticus 14. You're going to start reading, and at a certain point, your eyes are going to begin to defocus, and you won't be able to to tell if you've already read this part or not. And, And you will really feel like you're going to succumb to unconsciousness and then something weird is going to happen. You're going to start reading some things that are goosebumps. And you're going to go, wait a second, wait a second. I need to go back and reread this stuff because I think there's something in here that's, that's more important than I realized. Uh, two things to take away. Uncleanness is a real category. It's not just superstition. It has to do with the idea of God's holiness. Right? People who were uh, sick, people who were physically deformed, those sicknesses, those uh, blemishes were seen almost like symbols of the effects of sin, the fallenness of the world. It wasn't a literal connection, right? Like Jesus kind of rebukes the disciples who ask, was it this man's sin or his parents that made him blind? And Jesus is like, it doesn't work that way. So there wasn't a one-to-one connection, but the reason why people treated certain conditions the way that they did is because they spoke to the, the human condition of uncleanness, of unholiness, that, that our sin has made us unholy, and, and having to go through this process is a demonstration of how difficult it is to make what is unclean clean. Sin leads to disease and death, Symbolically speaking, those little instances represent the effects of sin. It's the reason why, for example, if you're offering a sacrifice in the Old Testament, you can't offer a blemished animal. An unblemished one has to be offered because that blemish represents that sinfulness. And what is offered as a sacrifice, as a substitute, must not be blemished, must not be itself unclean. All that just to say... There's a a history behind what the leper is asking Jesus to do. And for Jesus to do what he does here suggests a greater authority than we even realize. It's not just the ability to heal the sick. It is the ability to make what is unholy, holy. Like that. Simply by willing it. Simply by speaking it into existence. That is authority. That is is power. And for the leper, it wasn't just the power of health that was restored, because his health was only one of his problems. He was alienated from his fellow human beings. He was unable to participate in the life of the community. When Jesus made him whole, he made the whole man whole. He restored him physically, but he restored him socially as well. And he restored him spiritually as well. And again, that is authority. That is what astonished people, witnessing Jesus' ability to do that. Jesus says to the leper, after he does this, he gives him some instructions. Right? One of the instructions he gives him is to go to the priest Go present yourself to the priest, make the required sacrifice as a proof to them of what you've done. And that may 
raise a question in your mind, what's the point of that? Because if this procedure in Leviticus 14 is to make what is unclean clean, and Jesus has just made him clean, what is the point of going through the ritual of cleanness? Well, the point maybe is twofold. Uh, One, as Jesus says, it's the proof. If Jesus has the power to make what is unclean clean, and he keeps doing that, and then he keeps sending people to report to the priests at the temple that this is happening, he's sending them examples of a power they do not possess. The priest can make an atoning sacrifice that covers you for the moment, but Jesus is making them clean indeed. So eventually, having all of these healed people showing up at the temple, kind of annoying if you're a priest, But there's something else, too. Remember at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus said he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus didn't come to say, you know what, Leviticus 14, that's a lot of hassle to go through. It would be a lot easier. I could actually streamline the process. I'll just make you clean. How about that? We don't need to worry about that stuff. I will abolish the law. But Jesus didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. So he makes him clean. And then he sends him to the priest to make the sacrifice. Wrong way around, so it would seem. The the symbolism comes after the reality of the cleansing because he's come to fulfill all things. And he tells the leper, don't say anything about this to anyone. Tell no one about this. You might wonder about that as well. Why is Jesus keeping... Stuff like this secret. Well, it has to do with the timing of his ministry. Like when he gives a rationale, he's like, it's not yet time for these things to be widely known. Well, Matthew already tells us, though, after the Sermon on the Mount, great crowds are following Jesus. There are great crowds following him as a consequence of his astonishing authority, both word and deed. But Jesus doesn't do anything or say anything in order to get crowds. That's the point. Great crowds follow him because of who he is, but Jesus doesn't do what he does to attract the crowd. Jesus isn't uh, building a platform. If anything, it often seems Jesus is dismantling a platform as quickly as he can. There's no question of which way the authority is flowing here. The crowds follow because he has authority. He does not have authority because the crowds follow him. That will be the accusation his enemies will make, his critics. His critics fear the crowd. They want to arrest Jesus throughout his ministry. They want to deal with this guy. They're afraid to do it because the people wouldn't like it. That's not a factor in Jesus' mind. Because Jesus isn't playing the politics of the situation. He doesn't have to. Jesus is the king. Jesus has the authority. He shows that authority when he heals Peter's mother-in-law as well. And that's interesting too. The only thing it seems to have in common with the healing of the leper is the touch. Right? That once again, Jesus touches her. He touches her hand. He doesn't even say anything in this case, and she says nothing to him. She's in bed, lying sick with a fever, maybe unable to say anything, to ask anything. And Jesus just touches her and heals her. Her condition, I guess, objectively, is not as bad as the condition of the leper, but she is lying prostrate. She is unable to get up. 
Uh, Worse than that, probably in her mind, she is unable to give the hospitality that would be your duty and your pleasure when people enter into your home. Her sickness has taken away her ability to do the things she desires to do. She no longer has the power to serve because of her condition. Jesus touches her hands, probably the serving hand, and restores her. He gives her back her ability to serve. His authority is manifested in a gesture. And her reaction to this is incredible. Matthew says she rose and began to serve him. I hope you can see here that what's happening is more than Jesus healing the sick. He is healing the sick, that's true, but he's doing more than that. He restores cleanness to the leper. He restores power to this woman so that she can act and not just lay there powerless. If you have been made unclean by your sin, and you have, if you have been rendered powerless by your sin, and you have, then what you see Jesus doing here should fill you with astonishment too. Because what he has the power to do for them, he has the power to do for you as well. No matter how unclean you are, Jesus only has to will you clean. And you are clean. Nothing you can do, no sacrifice that you can make to clean up your act. But Jesus just has to want it. And you are clean. It is done. No matter how weak you feel, no matter how laid up you are by your own helplessness, the touch of Jesus is enough to fill you with power. You can rise. And not only that, you can rise and serve him as you were made to do. That's how Jesus uses his authority. And that actually is just the beginning. As they say, the night was still young. After he had done that healing, they started bringing him everybody they could think of. Like they're rounding people up. Hey, that guy's possessed by a demon. Get him over here. And Jesus casts out a demon. He's sick. Bring him over. Get him healed. And this is going on all night long. So much so that Matthew reports it to us in a summary, in a verse, sort of like a montage. Like the music now raises and we just see Jesus kind of touching and healing left and right. People being restored. People being made whole. That would have been a night to remember. If any of us had done what Jesus did that night, that would have been enough to be remembered forever. But for Jesus, that's only significant enough to rate a summary mention because of the amazing, astonishing things that Jesus did. The question you have to ask, though, on that evening and on every day and every moment of the life of Jesus is, how can this be? I'm astonished, but how is this possible? How can this man do what he is doing. Because he's a king? Well, yeah. But there are a lot of kings who can't do this. Just like there are a lot of priests who can't do what Jesus is doing. Not just any king would do. It had to be the right one. There was just one king who was promised by God. One anointed one 
who would be able to do all this with his divine authority. And Matthew makes it clear at the end of our passage that Jesus is that king. This is the king Jesus is, and this is why he can do what he does. This is where his authority comes from. And he does it by quoting Isaiah 53. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. If you go back to Isaiah 53, and you should, like if this afternoon you read through Leviticus 14 and you get to the end, congratulations, you now deserve a little Isaiah 53. So definitely go to Isaiah 53 and reward yourself. And when you do, you will understand why that is the passage that Matthew points to to describe the power of Jesus' healing ministry. Because Jesus possessed, possessed and possesses messianic authority because he is the anointed one of God. So Isaiah 53, it's the last of Isaiah's servant songs. It's a series of songs about uh, the servant who will come, but the servant that God is sending will be a servant who suffers. If you turn back there for just a moment, just to get a flavor, we won't read the whole thing, but, but just to, to kind of get it in your mind so you know which thing we're talking about here. This is Isaiah 53. It's the one who says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And then here comes the, the verse that Matthew quotes. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. When you go back and you read that, you might think, Matthew... Chronologically speaking, I think you're using this reference too soon. This is one you want to save for the crucifixion. But they're connected. They're connected. Matthew connects these two things together. And Leviticus 14 helps explain why. We're not going to read Leviticus 14, I promise. But one of the things you have to know is at a certain point in the ritual, the priest takes an unblemished male lamb, actually a pair of them, and offers a sacrifice of atonement on behalf of the unclean person. When this is done, when the animal is slain, he takes the blood from the animal and he puts it on the unclean man, in particular places, on the right lobe of his ear, on his right thumb, and on his foot. I'll let you guess where. The big toe. Then he follows up with oil and does the same thing. So starting here and then here and then there, right, covering the one who is to be cleansed. When it's all said and done, when the sacrifices are over, Leviticus says the priest has made atonement for him and he is now clean. He is cleansed by the blood of sacrifice that has been made. Speaking of cleansing... Do you remember, let's say, the most awkward gesture in Jesus' ministry, the washing of his disciples' feet? 
and how Peter, whose head is always screwed on the right way, from my point of view, reacts the way we should react when Jesus tries to kneel down before us and wash our feet. Peter's like, no way. This is exactly wrong. It should be the other way around. This is not going to happen. And Jesus says, well, if this doesn't happen, you have no part in me. And what does Peter respond? What does Peter say? Not just my feet, Lord, but also my hands and my head. And it makes you wonder what kind of cleansing Peter is thinking about here when it bears that echo of that cleansing atonement that was made in Leviticus 14. How exactly does a servant take our illnesses? How does he bear our diseases? You hear that question, you say, oh, I know, I know. He does it by healing them. Well, yeah, but the language here is pretty specific. It's not just language of of abolishing. It's language of, of taking and carrying. What he takes from us, he will carry himself. He will do it to the cross. Because the way that he does it is sacrifice. Sacrifice. The reason that Matthew quotes Isaiah 53 here is that every time Jesus made someone whole, every time he healed the sick, every time he cleansed the unclean, he was doing it as, you might think of it as an anticipation of the cross to come. That it was a hint, a sign, a sort of sacramental intimation of the sacrifice that would be made. As if Jesus is going through that night after healing that fever, saying, get out of here, demons. Give me that illness. I'll take it. Collecting everything that's wrong as he marches towards the cross where he will carry it. He will bear it for us. He takes our illnesses. He bears our diseases by offering himself as an atoning sacrifice for the sin that those illnesses and those diseases represent. This is what's astonishing. That Jesus has the authority that makes it possible for him to be the sacrifice. And he uses that authority to make us clean and whole. I don't know what's wrong with you. With some of you, I've got an idea. But whatever the problem is, If we put our heads together, we could probably find you an authority who could help. A judge can declare you innocent. A doctor can make you well. A therapist could resolve your issues. A hostess could connect you to society. A pastor could help you get your soul right. A personal trainer could help get you in shape. A teacher could get you educated. And none of them can make you clean. None of them can make you whole. Even all of them together can't do that. But what they can't do, Jesus can. And he can do it with a touch. He can do it with a word. He only has to will it. He only has to want it. And it is so. It is done. Jesus has come to suffer so that your suffering might end. And when people sensed this, when they realized it, they were astonished. And they were right to be astonished. And as you see it, and you realize it, you would be right to be astonished too. 
Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.